0: In today's podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Ronald Epstein, author of Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Attending is the first book about mindfulness and medical practice written for patients, their families, and for doctors and others providing health care. It is a groundbreaking, intimate exploration of how doctors approach their work with patients. From his early days as a Harvard Medical School student, Ronald Epstein saw what makes good doctors great, how they deliver more accurate diagnoses, make fewer errors, and build stronger connections with their patients. This set the stage for his life's work, identifying the qualities and habits that distinguish master clinicians from those who are merely competent. The secret he learned was mindfulness. Drawing on his clinical experiences and current research, Dr. Epstein explores four foundations of mindfulness, attending, curiosity, beginner's mind, and being present. He shows how clinicians can grow their capacity to provide high-quality care. In today's commodified healthcare system, with physician burnout at an all-time high, Dr. Epstein offers a model for doctors, patients, and their families on how to approach medical decisions mindfully and collaborate to achieve the best level of care for everyone. Dr. Ronald Epstein is a practicing family physician and professor of family medicine, psychiatry, and and oncology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, where he directs the Center for Communication and Disparities Research. He is an internationally recognized educator, writer, and researcher whose landmark article, Mindful Practice, published in the Journal of American Medical Association in 1999, has revolutionized physicians' view of their work. Dr. Epstein has been named one of America's best doctors ever since 1998 by U.S. News and World Report. For more information on Dr. Epstein and his work, you can visit his website at ronaldepstein.com. R-O-N-A-L-D-E-P-S-T-E-I-N, ronaldepstein.com. His book, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity, is available at Amazon.com and other booksellers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. Today, I am talking to Dr. Ronald Epstein about his book, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Welcome to the show, Dr. Epstein.
1: I'm pleased to be here with you.
0: Glad to have you. I wonder if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you first learned about mindfulness, and how you came to write this book.
1: Um, Well, uh, it kind of goes way back, Um, and I've been trying to trace where my first kind of meditative experiences started, and I think it was probably around when I was eight or nine. Um, I had asthma as a child, and in the 1950s and 60s, there weren't very good medicines available, so I found myself short of breath quite a bit and discovered that if I'd lay absolutely still and tried not to breathe too deeply, just kind of to regulate my breathing so I wouldn't trigger a cough reflex, um, I would feel calmer, I'd feel less fearful that I was out of breath. And also, um, I, I just felt this kind of sense of peace. Um, and I didn't really have words to describe that, but I knew that this was a place that I could go when I was feeling, somehow threatened or frightened. And then my asthma went away by the time I was 11 or 12. Uh, But I think that part of the reason that when I started to learn to do meditation a few years later when I was 16 or 17, that the experience was somewhat familiar to me. There's this idea of watching your breath, of being aware of the body, um, and experiencing a a sense of balance, a sense of presence, a sense of calm. I think all of that uh, seemed natural to me um this was um an era it's kind of hard to describe now having lived through it so long ago um but um it was an era when people were really um fervently trying to understand their interior their 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 psyche Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was there was it was the beginning of the popularization of psychology Mm -hmm. so magazines like psychology today kind of got started then, you know, for, for better or for worse. But, uh, um, and so a lot of my friends were taking these, uh, transcendental meditation one day course where you would learn a mantra and you would do some kind of mantra practice. And so I took one of them and, um, and there was a certain appeal to it, but there was also some trappings that I didn't particularly like about that. And then uh, a friend of mine who had an older brother who was a Zen practitioner taught me to do Zen meditation. And I really kind of liked the Japanese aesthetic and there was something about it that appealed to me. So I started reading a fair bit about Zen Buddhism, both from the West and from the East and, uh, and eventually uh, decided to become a Zen student. So I was in college at that point and um, was feeling that there was something missing from my life. I I, I mean, college was intellectually very stimulating, but I really thought that there there was just a depth of personal direct experience that I was looking for. Mm. And and certainly that was really concordant with the philosophy of Zen practice. It's not about what you think about things, it's about this um, uh, total immersion uh in um in experience in in the in the process of experiencing uh and i wanted that like i craved that so uh, i spent uh about three months at the san francisco zen center at a couple of their different centers and um and for me that was a very powerful and transformative experience and um i developed a meditation practice that continues to this day I faced a difficult decision at that point. I was just 19, I was the youngest person there. And I was thinking, well, maybe I would spend the rest of my life there as a Zen student, but then realized, wait a second, I needed to live my life a little bit more before making that decision. So I went back to college, um, eventually completed my degree in music, uh, although I still was interested in becoming a doctor, but I had kind of put that on hold. and then later did a a career shift uh, and uh, eventually ended up in medical school at Harvard. And the reason for Harvard was that there was one person doing research on the physiologic effects of meditation on blood pressure and heart disease, a guy named Herbert Benson. Uh, and He had written a book about that. And I thought, ah, here's the connection between this past life that I had and this future life that I would have as a healer. Uh, for me, it was a helpful kind of naivete that I went to medical school with because I, um, again, um, uh, books like The House of God and other popular books about the horrors of medical training were just coming out. So it wasn't really all that publicly known, this kind of, kind of dark underbelly of medical training. Right. Um, and I went in thinking that I would... Um, Achieve some synthesis between Eastern and Western ways of understanding health, illness, and the body. Uh, And to some extent pursued that and and achieved that. Acupuncture, I uh, did a number of things to combine the two. But philosophically, that the two were much more difficult to combine than I had imagined. I mean, pragmatically, there it was easy. You can add acupuncture to your practice as a family doctor but but philosophically this the holistic worldview that encompasses a lot of asian medicine and asian thought at that point and probably maybe a little less so now uh it's foreign to the western understanding of things so i maintain these two parallel tracks my zen practice and interested in interest in uh, buddhist philosophy on the one hand and my acquisition of skills and knowledge uh, as as a doctor as I went through training. Uh, Fast forward about 10 years after finishing my residency and um, I trained as a family doctor, I was put in a position of being in charge of some educational programs at the University of Rochester, where I still am. And part of my job was to figure out um, what made a doctor competent or expert or, you know, what made a doctor the kind of doctor you'd want to go to or send a family member to. And it had nothing to do with what your board scores are, you know, or your grade point average. I mean, if I was about to have surgery, I wouldn't ask the surgeon what, you know, his or her grade point average was (laughs) medical. So it doesn't matter, right? You want to make sure that this person has compassion, uh, has judgment, want to make sure that they're paying attention, make sure that they're interested in you as a person, that you're just not another uh, you know, statistic. And you want them to really be there for you. Uh, you, know, you don't want them just going through the motions. You want them to be present. And I thought, well, here are a bunch of things that make a doctor you know, who he or she should be but no one's really talking about this. People are just talking about board scores and standardized exams and um, and including in standardized, you standardized, know, whether you can tie a knot and whether you can do, do a surgical procedure, but people weren't talking about the habits of mind uh, of clinicians. And I thought, well, here's this missing piece. And so might as well write about it because I thought, well, this is what I try to teach. And this is what I try to exemplify um, and but no one's really putting it down in that way. So I wrote an article now, 20 years ago, um, for um, for JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. They had a call for papers about um, medical education, and I thought this was salient. And I thought, and I wrote it as a personal manifesto. As I, you know, I'd done quite a bit of work in uh, assessment of competence of of doctors and had had 10 years of my own experience, and also you know, recalled my experience as a patient in various venues, both as a child and later, and what really mattered uh, in, in healthcare. And so I wrote this, I called the article Mindful Practice, and thought that, oh, well, you know, I'll send it, they, they'll never publish it, and whatever, but they published it, and I had this fabulous editor um, uh, named Charlene Breedlove, who really got it and she It went back and forth to the journal seven times with different edits and suggestions and finally was published uh in 1999 so a little over 20 years ago and i got floods of correspondence of this i just you know from all branches of medicine surgeons pathologists radiologists family doctors psychiatrists um saying, yes, this is what medicine's about, this is really important. And by the way, how do you teach people to be this way? Okay, so that that was the next challenge. Uh, You know, I I could say, well, maybe before medical school, all applicants should have completed eight years of Zen Buddhist training and three months at a Zen monastery. that would be I thought, good <laughs> that'd be kind of nice but you know but it's I was kind of a non-starter right so then so then how do you um bring to life these ideas that people agree are important uh but aren't really on the landscape uh you know are, they're not on the map and and so that took a number of years uh, and to try to uh, ascertain you know can you teach doctors to meditate will they do it uh, do, even if they meditate a little bit will they learn something uh, will they um, will they be able to bring something from that meditation practice to their next interaction with a patient and especially an interaction that is fraught with some kind of difficulty or conflict or grief or um, you know, when they make a mistake or when they lose somebody, I mean, it just, uh, it's uh, so really when it really matters. That was an, And then what else do we need to do to help bring this, these cultivated states of mind to, um, to help physicians? Uh, I started out with physicians, but now I work with a wider range of health professionals, um, help them, Recognize those moments during their practice when they need to invoke whatever skills they have of being mindful. I I, I had to, and I I had to assume as a starting point that um, doctors are generally highly accomplished people. They have great perseverance. They generally care deeply about their patients. They generally, want to do the right thing, and also have to be attentive and present. I mean, if you're not attentive and present and you're a surgeon, you know, you're not going to be <laughs> doing your work safely. You have to be vigilant. So so some of those skills we already have, uh, but they're packaged in ways that often are hard to recognize and develop further. So part of the work was just trying to figure out how to help people use the capacity their natural capacity for mindfulness in a way that they can actually develop that capacity further, demonstrate it to others and teach it to others. Uh, so so I, I I did a workshop for a group of anesthesiologists um, and you know when you're when you're undergoing surgery you'd think that the surgeon is really the thing that matters the most but as the anesthesiologist really is, is the person who's going to make sure that you actually live through the operation. Right, right. Surgeon can do all the right things, but if the anesthesiologist isn't paying attention, you're not going to do very well. And I've asked them, you know, you're sometimes in this operation for, you know, two, four, six, eight, ten 10 hours. How do you continually pay attention during that time? And most of them said, I don't know. Yeah. So they developed this capacity, this skill. Uh, and yet they don't really quite know how they did that. And, and it might be a weeding out process. You know, people who weren't good at it might've gone into some other specialty, but, um, and similarly with, um, with surgeons, when I was a medical student, I noticed that surgeons when they encounter good surgeons, when they encountered, I mean, the operating room tends to be kind of lively place. People are talking often, you know, stuff that has nothing to do with surgery. There's banter. People are listening to music. But good surgeons, when there's something that goes awry or amiss, or there's something unusual, they'll often stop talking. Sometimes they'll turn the music off and pay this more focused attention as opposed to just kind of being on autopilot. Again, I asked surgeons, well, how do you know, you know, uh, and a colleague of mine in Toronto called these slowing down moments. She's she's a liver surgeon and does these long operations, and she's studied these slowing down moments. And... But, uh, and she's asked surgeons, well, how do you know when to slow down? And again, they say, well, you know, it just happens. You know, I just, I just know. It's a kind of this intuitive thing. Uh, so uh, I think part of the work that I've tried to do is get, get people to unpack that and say, okay, um, first of all, recognize that there's a moment that requires a different kind of attention and then recognize what it is that allows them to pay that more focused attention during that moment. But I think it's impossible to sustain that kind of focus for hours on I mean, end, generally we, we fluctuate in terms of our scanning the, the environment on the one hand and focusing on a specific task on the other. Um, but it, it, and so the radical idea here is that you can learn to regulate your own attentional process. So I remember in elementary school, you know, teachers would always say pay attention, right? Right. How do you do that? And for how long and to what? And um, so so there's the, that capacity of learning to regulate your own attentional capacities. And, and And that's something that you learn being a Zen student and you learn doing mindfulness meditation. And I would dare say you learn somehow tacitly when you're in surgical training. Uh, and So then um, about now 15 years ago, a colleague of mine, Nick Krasner, who's a trained mindfulness teacher, uh, was training doing uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction and also a primary care doctor. Um, uh, We met uh, in the process of trying to create programs for practicing physicians, for medical students, for residents. And the two of us over the past 15 years have developed a variety of programs for those different groups to try to put mindfulness on the map uh, in terms of um, medical training. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, the vast majority of medical schools in North America have some kind of mindfulness training opportunity for students. so so it's not part of the required curriculum and we could debate whether it should or not uh, but um, but it's there and and when I give talks to medical students and and ask them just to to, you know whether they've done any kind of meditation or contemplative practice usually two-thirds of them raise their hand Hmm. whereas 20 years ago maybe it might have been one or two so it's become part of popular culture Generally in a positive way, I mean, it's obviously gotten commercialized, you know, and, uh, but I think it's generally a good thing. And also, it has positive valence. So, um, uh, you know, I was afraid 20 years ago writing this that people would think that I was, you know, psychotic. (laughs) And now I don't worry about that anymore. You know, mindfulness is, uh, is is viewed positively. It's It's viewed as a positive attribute.
0: Uh, you know, I've heard people say that mindfulness and meditating is going to be like the, the sort of the beginning of the movement where people started running all the time. Right they, right. they laugh and say, you know, if you, you said, said, oh, I ran all the way here, they'd say, you ran here? You know, what were you running from? And, right, right. and now, and I think the the alternative was if you meditated, yes, yeah, somehow there's something crazy going on in your in your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the culture has shifted. And. And just questions I ask myself are, you know, if, you know, if you've got a medical school and there's one person who's like, you know, a super yogi, you know, kind of a yeah. dance meditation practice, that's that's kind of nice, but they're not there. That one person's not going to change the culture. Mm-hmm. If you have three quarters of people thinking that uh, this is a skill that's, that's somehow useful and worthwhile and develop little bits and pieces of it and apply it during their day and little bits and pieces. The cumulative sum of what all of those people are doing within an institution, within an enterprise, is significant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're somewhere along that spectrum of um, of uh, of trying to help people discover things about their own inner life, their own psyche, that they can regulate, that will both make them feel more. Robust and resilient, on the one hand, and also provide care that patients value and that's of higher quality. On the other, mm-hmm.
0: uh, the the book, which has so many good examples of, you know, you have all these vignettes, clinical vignettes of, you know, doctor-patient interactions and assessments, and has really brings to life the the value of having someone um, really be there for the patient. Um, and one of the I think what you're what you're explaining and really illustrating in the book is how you can be it it does it matters what you're paying attention to. Like when you talked about teachers in school telling kids like, pay attention, like like you said, to what for how long and all that. Can you say a little bit about how that how that works, how the practice or how you see, you know, um meditation as a means to enhancing a physician or really anybody's ability to know what to pay attention to
1: so i think there's a um actually a corrective going on in the meditation world or in the mindfulness world in the sense that um the original definitions of mindfulness that is paying attention non-judgmentally on purpose uh lacks an ethical framework it was paying attention to what okay mm-hmm. so in that sense, you could say that an assassin could be mindful; right. and they could be paying very close, focused attention onto their potential victim. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate in the mindfulness community about this: is mindfulness ethically and morally neutral? And um, and my feeling all along is a resounding no to that question. Uh, the, uh, and the, the first argument is historical. Uh, meditation was embedded in a very clearly articulated moral code, uh, first in Hinduism and then later in Buddhism. Of um, And the, the phrase that's used in Buddhism is right mindfulness. It's not mindfulness, but mindful of the right things. And the word that we translate as mindfulness also has a connotation of remembering and remembering that which is most important, that which the one thing that matters. Uh, so, so it's one thing being, um, and, and we have choices all, all day long. Uh, this morning I received uh, a, a, an email from someone asking for assistance with something that would have been fairly effortful for, for me to do. And then I received about 40 other emails that were uh, of little consequence. So there I got a choice, right? Right. Where am I going to direct my attention? I can imagine the feeling of of satisfaction having deleted forty other emails or processed them and making my inbox look a little better. Mm-hmm. But really, the thing that that needed my attention was that one email that would require stopping and thinking and um, seeing how I could be of assistance to that individual so so although the a similar set of neurons might've been firing. You know, I might've been paying attention on purpose. Really, really we're directing that attention. And, and in medicine, it really matters uh, when it comes to what patients bring to their doctors, you know, in terms of their concerns. So, um, we know that when people aren't feeling well, they not only have thoughts about their illness, but they also have feelings. And, and in i i do a lot of research on communication between doctors and patients and it's remarkable that if a patient brings up a physical symptom or a physical concern doctors tend to turn towards that pretty readily and about 80 percent of the time will address that, that physical that somatic concern but if patients bring up an emotion you know, let's say uh, someone with advanced cancer, you know, who, incurable cancer, it brings up that they're afraid or that um, uh, confused or you know some negative emotion. Uh, that gets missed about 80% of the time. The the doctor will then start talking about, well, let's see what the next scan results look like, or you know, we'll we'll be on a more cognitive level and will not address that emotion directly. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, doctors are not trained psychotherapists, and I don't think, nor should we be. But if someone's afraid of something, they're not going to remember very well. They're not going to remember your instructions. Mm-hmm. And they also, if they feel that their fears aren't addressed, they might not trust you as well. And if you're not trusted, then whatever treatment you prescribe, you know, has a much lesser chance of the patient actually following through with that. So it does have pragmatic consequences, whether that emotion is, is recognized. Uh, or not, and and so helping doctors t- to realize that they 're actually doing this, because I think most doctors if you show them a videotape of the consultation, they'll say, Oh my god, i didn 't respond to that um, and these are often very warm and caring people who, if the same kind of thing happened in the context of their family, they would have recognized the emotion and been comforting or addressed it in some way, but somehow the professional um, Uh, rules that we adopt make us kind of change the chip and so one area in which um, you can help by being more mindful is just realizing that you do have that predilection to not see emotion and um, um, and 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 then um, you know listen for it Just listen a little bit differently um and so at
0: one one point in the book you talk about you know as you go as you're about to enter the room to see a patient with your hand on the doorknob you just sort of take a minute and remind yourself like okay i'm going to try to be fully there and listen and and notice everything not just what what pops to the seems the most alarming in the moment yep
1: Yep. yeah yeah yeah, so i think I think that that kind of mental preparation is important. So, I often train doctors or suggest to doctors and or health health professionals in general that you know if they're seeing a series of patients to just use that brief moment between one patient and the next to be aware of your own thoughts and feelings, to be aware of which ones you want to carry from the first room to the next. You have a choice about that, right? Mm-hmm. and those that you don't want to carry with you just to put on an imaginary shelf next to you. It's not that you're saying those, those thoughts and feelings aren't, worth, aren't worthwhile, mm-hmm. but just they're not particularly going to help you be attentive and present to the next patient. So imagine uh, if you're a doctor and a family doctor and you know one patient that you see is um, a 55-year-old man who's got metastatic lung cancer and only has weeks to live. And then the next patient you're about to see is a healthy six month old there for a well child check. So you don't want to be carrying the lung cancer patient into the room with a young child or vice versa. Right. And, um, and it's clearly a stress of the work that we do just having to make those switches all the time. Uh, but, um, if it's done consciously and with awareness, then you can, uh, even a very very busy practice and often a chaotic setting, you can make those choices about where you want to place your
0: attention. Yes, I, that makes sense. And you know, again, a, another story you tell in your book that I think talks about how what that actually looks like, because mm-hmm. um, you just said, you know, if the if the doctor can leave behind the previous and, and previous appointment and just focus you share a story about a difficult time that you were having with a, with a patient and trying to talk to them about, I think she'd had heart, a heart attack and, and you eventually looked at her and said, how's this appointment going for you? You know, like you were starting to feel frustrated. I think you say like, Oh, did this woman come in to just, you know, aggravate me. And when you, when you realize, so there's something about the, you know, meditating and knowing being able to like, be present but also be aware of what's going on in your in your thoughts that right. you can just realize oh i'm in, i'm starting to think this way and i could just slow down and check in with this person and and it changed the whole experience for both of you
1: right so i could have tr- i could have just explained the same thing over and over again in the same way or talked louder uh, or talked faster or said well why don't you look it up on the web or I could have displaced it in any number of ways, but but feeling you know this this was a particular situation where where um, uh, where I just thought well I'm going to take a chance here I'm just going to I'm just going to listen rather than try to explain uh, and and say okay the floor is yours tell me what's going on for you and and in fact she said that no one really explained to her in clear terms what was going on with her she left the hospital with a completely different impression than what I saw written in the chart. And it was totally understandable why she said I didn't have a heart attack when, uh, uh," and in fact, it turned out that the diagnosis of a heart attack had been made after she left. So um, the definitive diagnosis. So, you know, I pieced what seemed to be a coherent narrative from the doctor and a somewhat crazy patient. Some suddenly um, began to all make sense. I said, "Oh of course, you know how could you have possibly understood what was going on given what you were told And, and so that's what I call a beginner's mind uh, in um, uh, there's a Zen saying that in the ex- in the beginner's mind, the possibilities are many in the expert's mind, the possibilities are few and and as experts we Sometimes forget that that our expertise is always contextual and is always limited. So, although I'm an expert in heart attacks, I'm not an expert in what this patient understands about heart attacks. That that only she can tell me. And so, it's setting aside my own worldview to try to accommodate hers and and kind of enter her world to the degree that I can. Yeah. Yes, and this this does sound like a luxury in a way. But in fact, I think if you practice this way, you'll practice more efficiently. You won't spend more time beating around the bush or trying to correct misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. And and part of why I wrote the book for a trade press, for for a popular audience, is not just for health professionals. Is I think it's important for the public to understand the um, emotional and um, cognitive and also spiritual challenges that uh, that health professionals face regardless of what kind of health professional you are um, if you're a massage therapist or a psychotherapist or a physician or an acupuncturist or you know what have you I think everyone faces some of those same some of those same challenges
0: definitely it's it's um, I mean as a non-physician i I found it very readable and, um, you know, great lessons in the context of specific stories that really br- brings it all to life. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time. I'm wondering before we end, if you would share with us a little bit about what you're doing now, if you have any ongoing projects or plans for the future and...
1: Oh, um <laughs> yeah well i i I'm, I'm energized about writing another book so that's that I've started on but oh, great um, to tell what the title is or anything and but i it was really um, energizing for me writing because I've written a lot of journal articles and things for the uh, you know academic kinds of things in medicine but this is, this is the first book I've written for the general public um in terms of the training I'm doing for for uh, for health professionals uh, that really has become a global enterprise so. I, I'm on air planes a fair bit, doing workshops for physicians around the world wow. to help them be more mindful. Um, and
0: do you see any one particular area in the world that seems more oh, determined? Uh, well,
1: in the past couple of years, I've done workshops in Australia and Hawaii. I'm going to Japan this year. My partner, uh, Nick Krasner, will be in Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, several workshops in the Netherlands. Um, I do a lot of work in Spain. And in chile uh, speak spanish so i do things there um uh, israel let's see where else really global norway yeah. sweden so yeah so it's it's um and then throughout north america so uh, it's been uh a surprising turn of events i it was not part of my life plan to spend so much time with these big metal tubes up in the sky but uh it's uh actually been quite energizing. Uh, So that's it's all it's all been good. And then we have a training program to train facilitators, people to teach mindful practice and to offer workshops on their own. And um, it's a pretty intensive program, but we've had now five cohorts of people go through. so, So that's occupying a lot of my attention at this point.
0: Great, great. And what's your meditation practice like now, personal?
1: Um, I, I meditate every morning for about 25 minutes and then maybe about five minutes when I get home in the evening, I just kind of do a lying down meditation and uh, just a transition between work and home. And periodically I'll, I'll do retreats, longer retreats and run retreats. But, you know, on my average day, that's what I do. Nice.
0: Well, gosh, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk with us today. I'll just remind the listeners that the book is attending medicine mindfulness and humanity and you can get that on amazon.com and other other websites that sell books and we'll all look forward to seeing what you have next what you're coming up with next
1: thank you
0: thank you so much for joining us
1: yes my pleasure